Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Uh, welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. This is Scott Parkin, your co-host in Berkeley, California. Bob is away on assignment today, so I am flying solo. And before we get into the episode, I just want to say thanks to all of our listeners and to all of our audience. Y'all are all great, and we really appreciate how much folks have been more and more sharing our work and listening to our work and just want to encourage you to do that. You're our best outreach tool. And be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and continue to share our stuff. The other thing that helps keep our podcast going, we have a small overhead and have uh, a couple things that we have to pay for, including the amazing editing that we do by Isaac. And so if you want to check us out and become a patron of the Green and Red Podcast on patreon.com backslash green red podcast, check us out or you can make a one-time donation at our website, greenandredpodcast.org. And so, as I said, much appreciation to everyone out there. Really appreciate our audience. We appreciate our patrons. We have a small but mighty patron group that we call the M19 Brigade, and y'all are fantastic, and it's closing in on M19s. So, you know, we'll send you a special shout-out for that. Um, so today's guest and today's episode, I'm, I'm very excited to have on the show. I've known her for probably 11, 12 years at this point. Uh, we're going to be talking about environmental organizing in the red, one of the reddest of the red states, Idaho. This is also Earth Week when this will be airing. And so we'll probably be having a couple of episodes around the environment, Earth Day, et cetera. Uh, but I am very excited to be joined today by Helen Yost, who is the co-founder and organizer with Wild Idaho Rising Tide. And for folks who know me, I've been involved with Rising Tide for a long time. Uh, Helen is also a, a citizen journalist, producer, and host of the weekly Climate Justice Forum program on KRFP Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. Helen has an academic background in conservation of resources, wilderness, wildlife, and environments. She has served uh, for 14 years in Northern Idaho as a social science research assistant, as an education outreach director, board member, president, canvasser, and organizer for various regional groups. And then Wild Idaho Rising Tide has since, I think, 2011, and we're going to talk about Wild Idaho Rising Tide quite a bit today, but has, you know, led uh, crucial, creative, local direct actions and solutions, including peaceful protest protective monitoring, public processes, and defensive litigation around the fossil fuel sector, uh, effectively confronting the root causes of climate change. So welcome to Green and Red, Helen. All right. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. Uh, and you're joining us today from Idaho, correct? I know that you're moving around a lot regionally, doing a lot of work in different parts of the, of the area. Yes, we have uh, some frontline headquarters in Sandpoint, Idaho, uh, overlooking the BNSF Railway fossil fuels pipeline on rails, keeping a good eye on that mess. And that's actually uh, the train monitoring and the, and the rail work has actually been a big part of your work in recent years, correct? Yes, it has been. Uh, well, we started with our first ever coal train protest back in November 2012, but uh, we've been 
straight through in Sandpoint, located on the shores of Idaho's largest, deepest lake, Ponderay, uh, since the end of 2015. So uh, we've been actively uh, confronting railroad pollution and hazards uh, ever since then. And so in Idaho, you know, different states have different relationships with the fossil fuel sector. And so we see a state like Wyoming, which produces a lot of coal. We see a state like Oregon or Washington, you know, they, they play a role as an exporter and attempt to be export states. How would you, how would you categorize Idaho in, in that? And, and I know it's a very complicated thing, but it seems like there's a lot of like transportation around fossil fuel issues that y'all have worked on. Yes, Idaho is mostly uh, defended by regional residents uh, from fossil fuels coming through from both the Bakken shale fields in uh, northeastern Montana and northwestern North Dakota, as well as there is some tar sands that comes through from Alberta uh, on trains, and that is also true of the, the Bakken shale oil. Um, and then there's tons of coal. It's been actually increasing since the fourth quarter of uh, 2020 because of a China embargo of Australian coal imports. So that comes through and pollutes the lake pretty well with coal dust since uh, the trains travel all through the, the upstream watershed where they managed to have a coal train wreck and dump a bunch of coal in the upstream reservoir back in August 2017. Um, and then, I don't know, I could go through the whole history of everything we fought. It's mostly been transportation onslaughts by the fossil fuel industry, but probably the least heard about in all the Northwest is that there is a small extraction effort down in southwest Idaho, located mostly about 50 miles northwest of Boise mm -hmm. in Pitt County. There's been about 20, 25 wells drilled. Mostly the area is producing gas, but also some condensate, which goes for top dollar uh, because it can be used for instance, it can get mixed in with tar sands to help transport tar sands through pipelines. Uh, so yeah, it's mostly transportation issues in Idaho, but also a little bit of extraction that nobody really hears that much about. Right. I, I have heard a little bit about the about some of the fights around the extraction. And and I'm kind of curious, and I mean, this, this is going to be an obvious question with an obvious answer, but how does the you know, state government uh, of Idaho you know, interact with the fossil fuel sector? Well, uh, just to give you an idea, there have been uh, laws passed both at the county and at the state level uh, that were right off the industry template. And I don't, the name's slipping my mind now. I can't remember. Uh, what's the name of the industry consortium that writes Alec. template law? Alec. Yeah, Alec. We've had Alec at every level of government. And about the American Legislative Exchange commission or something like that for, for our like audience. That. Yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, and with our Idaho legislature being composed primarily of uh, increasingly radicalized uh, Republicans, about 83% of our legislators are Republicans. Um, they're all gung-ho on the fossil fuel industry and deregulation. Uh, it's always a fight to when there's uh, negotiated rulemaking, it seems like it's the citizens that are gonna be directly impacted and harmed 
on one side of the table and then, you know, the state officials and industry, it's mostly been monopolized by one drilling company that has changed names faster than anything I've ever seen. Uh, and then curiously also some of the big greens tend to be on that side of the table too. Shocking. So, uh, big shock, big are, shocker. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, citizens are sort of left on their own, especially in rural areas are heavily targeted because, and when it's a red state, they industry figures it's going to get less pushback um, from the people and that they might not be as well educated. Idaho legislators love to, uh, to undercut education funding as well, and that they might not be as well organized. So uh, there's there's all kinds of projects we fight besides the fossil fuel sector. There was recently a, a silicon smelter that supposedly was going to help green energy propose for Newport, Washington, about 30 miles west of Sandpoint. There's been, you know, an asphalt plant that was recently uh, fought off in the area. There's even the SpaceX antennas that they uh, tried to locate in our big agricultural area that we might need if uh, everything falls apart, of course. Um, all kinds of little projects here, there, and everywhere. But industry tries to get around citizen resistance by, of course, changing the rules in advance or as it goes. Uh, for instance, concerning oil and gas extraction down in Payette County, they bought leases of state lands under rivers, under the Boise River, the Payette River, all the rivers in southwest Idaho, uh, assuming that they weren't going to be able to lease people or people's minerals, their oil and gas that were resisting. And so uh, there's a law about integration of mineral holders where if they can get I think it's 60 or 70% of the people in a section of land to lease their oil and gas to the company, then they can go to the state and, uh, and ask the state for an integration order that forces the other 30 to 40% to lease their oil and gas at low rates to the company. So we suspect they've leased all the riverbeds because uh, that's state-owned oil and gas resources and then they can easily push over the people nearby. And so now there are two wells drilled in the floodplain riverbanks of the low, lower Payette River right before uh, it converges with the Snake River. And there's soon to be a third we certainly don't want to see a third drilled right on riverbanks, especially after what we've seen with flooding in Colorado uh, and other places. Um, yeah, and people have to fight these companies off because then, uh, you know, their property values, the insur the insurability and enjoyability of their properties are degraded. Uh, you know, they're faced with the air and water pollution that an industry like this brings right to their backyard. And of course, all the infrastructure that goes with it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely an issue on many fronts. It, it feels almost like 1849 in California and all the miners are stampeding the place and trying to take everything as fast as they can before people catch on to what's going on. And that happens especially in rural red states. Right. It's like everything that's not nailed down, right? Yep. Um, I have a couple questions about the different types of resistance that's been going on, but for like those drill sites next to the river, what is the, what does the local resistance look like? Is that just like individuals who are like taking the companies to court or is there like a kind of community campaign effort? 
or yeah actually there's been really good resistance uh they drilled the first wells in december 2009 and there started to be resistance like within a year or so it was mostly just nearby citizens that were documenting it um raising alarms at the county and state level um, and we were involved early on with protests as far back as uh, 2012 and community forums on the issue. Um, and then uh, a group called Citizens Allied for Integrity and Accountability stepped in and uh, they actually were able to litigate at the federal level. And some of the first uh, forced pooling, as they call the integration process of forcing people to lease their oil and gas, uh, some of that was contested in a federal case that uh, that actually won, and it was upheld by a federal judge uh, a few years ago. And so now we're into a situation where they're trying it again with these one of these wells drilled near the river, and uh, soon to drill a third. And uh, there's been some really good sort of through the system work being done by that group, and we back them up whenever we can when they need comments written to the state. Uh, and it's supposed to be on the Idaho Department of Lands and the Idaho Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, which all has a governor appointed folks on it. Yeah, it's uh, they've they've been leading a pretty good charge and we've been helping out wherever we can with that. Well, that's great to actually hear that that sort of like local resistance is has been has been working like that. Um, yeah, and it's, it's mostly been based on property rights, which we were shouting early on about, you know, you're degrading public water and air and lands, but it was property rights that was able to get some kind of constitutional standing and pushback in all these court cases. So, um, so that's been a good thing. Has uh, indigenous rights also been an issue in, in some of the resistance going on around the, uh, around fossil fuels? It has mostly uh, with the whole Megalo campaign. And um, that started out, uh, it's it's such a long, long story, many years. It started in uh, April 2010 up in Missoula, actually. They were the first folks to hear about it. And then um, the Nespers tribe or the Nimipu people heard that uh, these huge tar sands mining uh, pieces of equipment transported on really long trailers, pulled by and pushed by several semi, huge semi trucks, um, all together called megaloads. Uh, we're gonna be coming up through their reservation and up the wild and scenic uh, and, lot. And that was an Exxon Mobil project as well, right? Yeah, it was, but there were many companies that tried many routes, just about every route you can think of uh, from the ports on the Columbia and Snake Rivers. Uh, there's a couple in the Lewiston, and uh, across the river, Clarkston, uh, sort of the Idaho-Washington border. Um, and then they were even bringing them up to Eastern Oregon, Umatilla, which is really close to the Umatilla reservation. And there was some resistance from those folks. Um, though initially, most the on the ground protests, beside the court cases that were fought by the Nespers and allies, uh, most of the on-the-ground resistance happened in Moscow. They were forced by court cases in both Idaho and Montana to bring the loads up Highway 95, which is the road north out of the Port of Lewiston, instead of Highway 12, which is the road east out of the port uh, that goes through the reservation and through the Wild and Scenic River Corridor. Um, so we protested about 60 loads that they had to cut in height uh, to make these loads fit under 
overpasses, which is why they wanted to go through these really wild areas because there isn't any bridges in their way. And these were super, they, these loads were up to 200 feet long. They, they filled up two lanes on a rural highway. They were like 25 to 30 feet wide. And they were, I uh, can't remember the height, but uh, I want to say 16 to 20 feet high. And most overpasses can handle that. So, um, so we fought them all throughout 2011 uh, and 2012. And then uh, maybe because of our resistance, they had to start bringing them to the Port of Pasco in Eastern Washington. And they brought them up through uh, Spokane and on all the interstates up to Canada. And we were still fighting them. The Nest Purse then, they finally ro rose up like the next year in 2013 when they did actually get four loads up Highway 12. Uh, but then that inspired people all throughout the whole region. And uh, even Rising Tide colleagues in Seattle and Portland were, for instance, occupying uh, the megalode owner's offices or uh, occupying the state transportation offices. And uh, folks in Eastern Oregon, when they tried to bring them that way and then down through Southern Idaho and up into Montana, uh, they were locking down with disabled vehicles out in extremely redneck towns. Uh, and um, it, was, it was John Deere. Was it John Deere, Oregon? Is that the one John of the towns? Day. John Day, John yes. Day. Uh, and, uh, and the Umatilla folks uh, were, you know, confronting them as much as they could through their reservation. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a really strong winter. It was the winter of 2013-14. Uh, there were round dances led by a coalition of Montana tribes in the streets of Missoula. That was uh, their, their, our last hurrah as sort of as a four state coalition before the, these loads finally made it up to Alberta. But there were also loads that then were forced to go another route up through Sandpoint and then a whole nother direction through Western Montana to get to a refinery in Great Falls, Montana on the other sides of the mountains that were uh, a part of an upgrader. So it wasn't just the mining. There's two kinds of mining megaloads that went up to Alberta. Uh, ones that, um, that were part of a first stage processing plant for the Kuril oil sands that was run by Imperial Oil, which is a subsidiary of ExxonMobil. Uh, and there were other ones and that were, they, they looked very phallic. They essentially were these long, narrow things that were stood on end at their destination and they were used to process water that or steam that was pumped down into tar sands deposits that were too deep to surface mine. And then that steam loosened the tar sands so that they could be sucked up. And then the water was recycled and uh, sent through these huge up, uh, standing tubes to be cycled back through the ground again. So we had all kinds of things coming at us and uh, including the Montana refinery megaloads that came last. And that was, uh, that was after that really active winter of 2013-14, the following fall in 2014. Uh, which is when we found out we were also being investigated by the FBI is when uh, the last loads came through North Idaho. As best as we can tell, you know, although we weren't unable to stop, I want to say, oh, 100 loads maybe total coming through the whole region using every possible route through the mountains in the winter. Um, 
we they don't bring big loads through here anymore. They essentially break them down into smaller pieces. And uh, they're sprung up on the east, near Missoula, but also on the east side of the mountains along the Rocky Mountain front in Montana. Uh, a bunch of sort of welding operations, both out in open fenced fields and in huge warehouses like outside Great Falls and just south of Glacier Park, where uh, they snuck all kinds of smaller pieces through for the Bakken shale fields and for the Alberta tar sands. And there were all kinds of Eastern Montana guys that were willing to weld together all these things. And then they sent the mega loads on their merry way. So uh, it took quite a few years from 2010 until 2014 and constantly being on them in the streets all over four states uh, to make them realize you don't want to send these big loads through here. It's easier just to sneak the little snuff stuff through probably on the interstates and weld it together and then send it to its destination. And and just for context for people at home, the, the equipment they were bringing over that was actually being constructed in East, in Asia, South Korea, if I remember correctly. Yeah, some of it, we, we tried to, you know, research all of that. Some of it might have even been constructed up in uh, BC and shipped down along the coast to places like uh, the Port of Vancouver in Washington. Uh, but a lot of it came from either Korea or Japan, I believe. Uh, and it came into the various ports all the way up the Columbia and Snake Rivers. They're about 425 miles, I think, inland from the Pacific Ocean. So they used that whole dam system that now uh, colleagues are fighting, for instance, to have the four dams on the Lower Snake River removed because um, the salmon populations are rapidly and have been for decades declining. And of course, uh, that is the source of sustenance and culture for many of the inland Northwest tribes. So, um, so yeah, the, another good reason to take the dams down, we realized pretty early on, especially when the Port of Lewiston was expanding, was to keep these huge shipments from coming in and the Idaho ports and the nearby Washington ports from becoming an inland supply route, an industrial corridor through otherwise rural and wild areas to the Bakken shale fields and the Alberta tar sands and other inland mining operations. You know, I, I traveled through southern Idaho last summer, which along even drove along the Snake River some, which it also seems like it's a very agriculture heavy part of the state. Mm -hmm, it is. It's heavily irrigated because it's such a dry area and it has uh, such porous sort of lava based soils. Um, the whole arc of the Snake River in southern Idaho is where uh, Yellowstone passed under. It was all once a giant hot spot. And of course, people are also still concerned about Yellowstone blowing one of these days. And then, you know, pretty much everybody in Idaho would be toast. But but who knows when and if that'll ever happen. We've had, uh, ironically, um, maybe it was Mother Earth thanking us. There was the second largest ever earthquake in Idaho on our ninth anniversary last year, March 31st. On the, on the megaloads, we're in the 10-year anniversary of when the megaloads started rolling and when the camp the resistance campaign began when i think of wild idaho rising tide i think about the the pushback that the your resistance to the megaloads campaign got which you know came from a, a couple of different sectors but um just the my my first question is around the 
you know, you, you personally, I believe, and then Wild Idaho Rising Tide, as well as other activists were investigated by the, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, it sort of took us unawares, and we don't really know what triggered it, but uh, apparently there was an investigation opened by the FBI in the summer of 2014. Uh, we weren't aware of it until um, some core work activists, including myself, were contacted directly by the FBI, either on our doorsteps or by phone message and text message uh, in October and December 2014. Uh, and we have since learned, thanks to public records requests by The Guardian, that uh, that investigation was relatively short-lived, only six months. But uh, when we found out about it and let fellow activists and uh, investigative journalists know about it, it became pretty big news. It became actually international news that the FBI was going after such well-intentioned, mild-mannered rural activists that were not doing anything illegal. You know, we got in the way of the megalodes, I want to say maybe a half dozen times, or sometimes we were unintentionally arrested while uh, riding bikes along the megalode route or monitoring. We did a lot of monitoring because their every move seemed to be breaking their travel plan contracts with the state. Um, but, uh, and of course, uh, the Nest Purse folks got arrested a bunch and so did the Eastern Idaho, uh, both indigenous and climate activists that were locking down and getting in the way. Um, so it might actually have been a reaction to that really strong winter of 2013 and 14 when we did have a coalition all across the whole four states really actively working against tar sands megalodes, um, not just because they were wrecking our roads and polluting our rivers, but because of the huge damage that tar sands mining and first stage refining does to the lands all around the tar sands. There's not only the tailings ponds that are leaking into the Athabasca River, but the stacks of some of these processing plants, like the ones the megalodes went to at the Curl Oil Sands facility, um, are spewing essentially tar sands and oil all over the landscape and degrading the subsistence practices of uh, the indigenous folks all around that whole area and, uh, and really causing some unusual cancers among them. But anyway, um, so we think that's why the FBI got a hold of us or started an investigation is because there was just such a great coalition going during the winter of 2013 and 14. And um, we, re we refused to talk to them. There's probably about a dozen or two dozen folks that were contacted all up and down the West Coast, as well as a couple wild Idaho Horizon Tide or WERT activists. Um, and uh, like I said earlier, we since learned from investigative journalists that they were concerned, not just like there really wasn't that much mention about the tar sands megalodes. They seemed more concerned about the critical infrastructure of railroads. And we were just barely starting into that campaign as we were still wrapping up our campaigns against megalodes. And, um, Apparently what we've learned, there's there's been numerous times when this topic has come up in international media, first at the beginning of 2015 and then again 
in uh, late 2019, ironically, we thought just as BNSF Railway was getting its last permits to expand its infrastructure, both doubling track and three bridges across downtown Sandpoint, Sand Creek, and uh, almost a mile across uh, Lake Ponderay, there was an article that came out then that said that, you know, industry and government were sharing information about uh, about activists that they were surveilling and they were concerned about activists uh, getting in the way of critical infrastructure, perhaps uh, posing some kind of illegal action threat. And we had never, we had never blockaded a railroad at all. It was ironic. Um, you know, some of our comrades in Spokane have, uh, but, and then that got dragged through the courts till it was practically impossible to continue on with those cases. Which there, I, there were some in Missoula as well, right? Uh, yes, there actually was a lot of blockading railroads in Missoula, even including uh, relatively famous writer, Rick Bass. Um, and the group that had that up was the Blue Skies campaign. They were mostly targeting coal trains. Uh, whereas WIRT has been targeting coal oil, uh, there's been ethanol trains, there's pet coke trains that come through from time to time, and there's also lots of hazardous material trains that we're very aware of because up in Missoula, um, I was actually working very close to uh, just one tank car of chlorine derailed and ruptured and leaked very toxic gas into a small town area about 30 miles west of Missoula back in 96. So uh, some of us in the Inland Northwest are very acutely aware that it's not just oil and gas, but of course other toxic, mostly petrochemicals uh, that could do some damage to the area if, uh, if they ever derailed. And of course there's now all the plans to carry LNG, liquefied natural gas on the railroads. Uh, that's being fought by various groups and on the federal level, uh, that's also a threat. So we see this railroad running through North Idaho up in the Panhandle about a hundred miles as being our pipeline on rails essentially that carries all kinds of toxic stuff and that should be fought just as vigorously as all the other pipelines uh, throughout the country. And that may actually serve as the default route without enough pipelines installed out to the West Coast if hopefully efforts against the Trans Mountain pipeline expansion up in um, BC. And of course there's a spur line that runs down into Western Washington. If those resistance efforts are successful, uh, you know, there's other tar sands pipelines running down into the Midwest. The Keystone XL has been canceled, but uh, the Line 3 on the ground battle is ongoing. It's just a matter of time, we believe, before uh, there's an increase in oil train traffic on this route through Idaho and all across the Northwest, both Washington and also on both sides of the Columbia River, BNSF goes along the North Shore and uh, Union Pacific goes along the South. There have been derailments of oil trains already. Um, one in uh, Mosher, Oregon, right next to the Columbia River. In fact, some of the oil made it into the river from, and it was Bakken Shale oil 
And that was in uh, June 2016. There was the recent derailment in Custer, Washington uh, in December 2020, just north of uh, Bellingham, Washington. And uh, ironically, there had been arrests of activists who had been placing shunts in railroads throughout the course of 2020, uh, or so they, they allege. Um, and a shunt is essentially copper wire and other things that are used to interrupt the electrical signal on a railroad line in the middle of its track. Um, we, we put out information that, I don't know, it, we have to wonder if the railroad wouldn't purposely derail itself just to criminalize these efforts that were disrupting some of its oil train traffic. Right. Um, it, who knows, you know, we suspect there were so many oil train derailments back in, I think it was like 2013, as well as tar sands derailment. And there was the argument, oh, well, you know, it's safer uh, and it won't explode in your face if we put this gunk in pipelines. And so let us build these pipelines instead of hauling that's, it on. That's, that's interesting argument, right? For, for pipelines is it safer than oil trains. Yeah, yeah. And so we have to wonder if industry wouldn't self-sabotage, quite frankly. I mean, it's a wild conspiracy, I got to admit. But at the same time, you, you really got to wonder because there's so much resistance to pipelines right now. And uh, oh, what a lovely coincidence that supposedly folks were caught, you know, disrupting the rail lines uh, in mo more covert ways. There's been all kinds of actions blockading the railroads all across the Northwest too, not just up in Montana against coal trains. There's There was the huge, um, uh, what was the name of it? Now I'm forgetting. Um, uh, anyway, it was in the Anacortes refinery area, uh, break free Pacific Northwest and right. people got- Break free from fossil fuels. Yep, people got in the, in the way of the tracks, the spur line that goes out to those refineries. And of course, fought one of those two refineries on March point from uh, getting permits to transload oil uh, off trains. Although there is still one refinery that receives uh, oil trains there. And then Anacortes was also the site of one of the valve turner actions for and for folks who don't know who the valve turners are you should totally check them out but they are folks who went in to uh there's essentially there's four or five pipelines which come into the u.s from canada and the valve turners went onto uh control stations or pump stations and basically turned off the valves by turning them and so anacortes is actually where one of those actions happened the other ones were in like montana and north dakota and wisconsin i believe yeah, they coordinated it so that they turned off all the tar sands pipelines coming into the United States all across. They, there might be some eastern ones they missed, but essentially from the Great Lakes westward. So there was two in Minnesota right next to each other, uh, one in uh, North Dakota, and he actually because it was uh, concurrent with the uh, Standing Rock Dakota Access pipeline uh, resistance camps. He got the harshest sentence and actually went to jail. And then uh, there was one in Montana and one in Washington that you just mentioned. Right. Um, just north of Seattle. Yeah, but there's also been blockades like uh, soon after the Mosher, Oregon derailment, there was a blockade in Vancouver, Washington. And of course there was a coal train blockade way back during the Occupy movement in, I think it was December, 2011 in Bellingham. 
so there's been plenty of blockades of uh, rail infrastructure all throughout the whole region, although, you know, we were very surprised that the railroad would be so concerned because we haven't, I mean, we've supported all those actions. We've gone and played a, a supporting role in, in all those actions in one way or another, either through publicity or uh, through actually going to those locations, but we've never blockaded anything. So why, you know, why is the railroad and the FBI investigating us? Right. Who knows? And, and, they, and they contacted you as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they actually, they called, uh, there was an FBI agent out of Coeur d'Alene, which is about 30 miles south of Sandpoint, uh, that called and left the message and I missed it somehow in early December, 2014. Um, and I didn't realize that he had contacted me until when he didn't hear back. 10 days later, he sent me a text saying, hi, I'd like to talk with you. And of course we immediately said, uh, we refuse to talk to you or anyone about any of this. And we contacted our lawyer and we put word out through social media, you know, don't talk to these guys if they come around um, and did everything we could to resist uh, that inquiry. But yeah, it was sort of weird to, to be contacted directly by the FBI. And we can, and we can play and we're going to play the excerpt of the, yep. of the call right now. Hello, this is Travis Diddy. I work with the FBI. I was trying to get a hold of uh, Helen Yost. If you could give me a call back, I would appreciate it. My phone number is 208-661-0316. Thank you. So, yeah, and then um, there's been articles that have come out, like I said, the one right around when uh, the railroad got all its permits to do this huge expansion project in the area, which, by the way, there was a lot of resistance by uh, the local community and a couple big green groups who, as soon as uh, the railroad, even before it got its last permit, they essentially walked away from resistance. So it was left up to us as the small grassroots on the ground group to um, essentially we go out to the site and, and we can see like just now looking out the window at a huge crane. I want to say it's probably about five stories high. Uh, the railroad line is only about 700 feet from our office windows that look out over Sand Creek and the lake as well. So we can see and we go out and monitor and document all the damages done by this railroad expansion project. And we suspect they want to expand because, like I said earlier, uh, it could become uh, a funnel, an industrial corridor for tar sands and Bakken shale oil, and of course, also coal, which there's been an increase in that because of a uh, China embargo against Australian coal recently. Um, all out to the West Coast. It's a giant pipeline on rails. and. Right. Uh, we just don't want to see any kind of fossil fuel infrastructure, even though, admittedly, probably about three quarters of the traffic on the rail line is, well, you know, industrial agriculture produced grain. Yeah, we need some more of that toxic stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, giant shipments of automobiles uh, and all kinds of stuff in boxes called intermodal trains that either come probably from Asia or from the interior, uh, consumer goods. What, and, and, one thing I'm kind of curious about on the on the sort of pushback to resistance campaigns or campaigns against fossil fuels, I'm going to guess that the climate denial uh, is pretty high in Idaho, and there's probably a lot, a lot of love of fossil fuels. Do you? And and so it sounds like some 
property rights advocates are like fighting some of these fossil fuel projects. But I'm kind of curious what kind of, you know, backlash or, or pushback you get from the, um, like Republicans or you know, like Idaho is known for militias. I'm kind of curious if you've gotten that sort what what sort of like harassment or backlash you've gotten there. Well, um, we understand from the later articles, the one in 2019 I was just talking about, and then there was one just this last fall. And that's the, uh, the Guardian article with the with the Freedom of Information Act docs from Adam Fetterman, right? Right. That was in fall 2019. And then this last fall, 2020, there was one that came out from The Intercept that actually was centered around... Um, a uh, strong oil train critic and journalist who has even written a book about uh, oil trains, Justin McCulka. Although we, along with other groups like Sunrise Movement, Lois La Vie down in Louisiana, uh, and other groups were mentioned in the article as being, you know, surveilled uh, constantly by the railroad industry. Um, they have a daily report called RADAR as an acronym, and uh, and they and government share their surveillance of these various groups because they consider us a threat to, you know, critical railroad and energy infrastructure. Um, there has been pushback in the legislature, but it never was finalized as a law, as there has been in many states where uh, there have been stronger laws written, and I believe probably initially Alex sponsored um, against protesters who right. step foot on critical infrastructure or protest it in some way. It's these and pipeline that, protest bills that we're hearing about in about a dozen right. or two dozen states. Yeah, and one started its path through the Idaho legislature, but it just never it never went anywhere, thankfully. And probably because at the time, maybe you know our activism wasn't loud enough or in Boise, where the legislature is located on the other side of the state. It's almost like we have two states uh, in Idaho, sort of the more progressive north and the more reactionary south. Um, and that's true also in Oregon and Washington, too, where the eastern sides are more conservative and the western sides are more progressive. But, um, yeah, I don't know why I didn't make it through the Idaho legislature. Uh, that's been the only real governmental pushback that we've gotten. Uh, and, there and, isn't really and this much regulation. Just to say one thing about that, this is a state that's known for the Earth First laws of the 90s around forest campaigns that Earth First did where they outlawed being part, a forest defender, correct? Yeah, I don't know a lot about that, although some of our core members are actually uh, veterans of those uh, forest activism campaigns. Um, but I don't, I'm not real up on the laws that happened back then in the 90s that actually some of those, from what I understand, have and have found in through research, were actually supported by Big Greens, too. Shocking. So, shocking again. I'm, that's my yeah, question. Yeah, just, yeah, you wouldn't think, right? Uh-huh. So uh, send them all your money, folks. Yeah, right. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, it's been rough all the way around. There's been, you know, a lot of times we feel like there's nowhere we can go, even without our phones, without police noticing. So there's that that goes on around activists a lot. Um, we've been, you know, the way we organize protests is sort of like, y'all come on down. We're very public about, okay, we're going to do this protest at such and such a place. Although sometimes we'll have a secondary location or something uh, but, you know, there's almost always cops at, that show up at our protests. And um, thankfully, though, we haven't had it as bad 
as uh, what happened with some Black Lives Matter protesters this last summer in June. It was a protest um, mostly organized by the high school students in town. And, you know, their parents came along just to make sure they are going to be safe. They were trailed by militia folks mm. organized mm. for this protest with guns. They, uh, you know, they walked through town and they went out to the, um, the highway bridge that sort of at an angle parallels the railroad bridge over the lake. This is in um, Sandpoint? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. And, uh, and, you know, it really scared the heck out of all these folks, right? And so then sort of as much as to, of course, defend and protect what few Black lives there are in sort of white supremacist North Idaho, as much to, to defend those folks as to also retaliate against all the white supremacists and misogynists and gun toters and Second Amendment folks and all the rural reactionaries, um, people really showed up hard in this town last summer wow, for that's several, several Black Lives Matter protests, um, probably for the, those reasons, you know, not for the, the, the initial reasons, but because quite frankly, throughout the rural West, you know, everywhere on the east side of the Cascades in Washington, Oregon and California, there, it's just been a hotbed for, you know, there's, there's been the Bundy standoffs. Um, some of our wonderful Idaho legislators even went over to the uh, Malheur Wildlife Refuge um, occupation where people were actually killed over in central Oregon right. several years ago. And so there's all these different groups, the three percenters, um, I can't remember all the different names, but there's all these militia groups and they Oath train. Keepers, yeah. Oath keepers, yeah. They train and they organize. And, you know, they were occupying capitals in capital buildings in, you know, Boise, in Oregon, in uh, Washington, long before, like all throughout the fall when Trump seemed to be. Um, recruiting and uh, just amplifying his troops, it seems, um, in possible preparation for the, the Washington, D.C. Capitol riots. They, right. they were already occupying these other capitals in the Northwest and West. And the so, Bundys have been organized in actually a no-mask campaign in Idaho and in, in Boise, correct? Yeah, I haven't been following it that closely, but there was the most recent probably most egregious uh, event was uh, people actually burning masks outside the Idaho Capitol in Boise and children participating in that with glee. Um, that, yeah. And there's been, you know, there's been protests on the same bridge where the Black Lives Matter protesters were standing and actually were, uh, they had to suffer uh, what they call rolling coal, where big trucks, big diesel trucks come through and they spew all kinds of black smoke all over people in their path or on the sidelines. Um, you know, on that same bridge, there were also huge protests of people protesting any restrictions of their supposed rights to not wear a mask. Uh, there were um, militia at the Black Lives protests and at these anti-mask protests also down in Coeur d'Alene, even stronger numbers there. And uh, some of those protests were actually used as recruiting events to uh, get folks in more urban areas who wanted to get away from uh, liberal regulations and politics 
they use some of those gun-toting demonstrations in North Idaho to actually recruit folks to come move here and be a part of their movement. So Idaho is now the fastest growing state in terms of immigration, I think, in the whole country. And uh, there's been entire real estate companies that have sprung up just to accommodate uh, these militia types coming to Idaho so they can all very merrily do their thing. So needless to say, besides the pandemic being very thoughtfully observed uh, by liberals and progressives and radicals, you know, keeping our distance from other folks, wearing masks in public, um, you know, getting vaccinations, you know, people have been sort of bogged down and not willing to come out for protests. But now there's also this other element where uh, the counter protesters have guns, you know. So, hey, come on yeah. out and protest these oil and coal trains. It's like, good luck with that. So, yeah. Have, it, have you difficult. have you seen militias turn out to anti-fossil fuel demos? They haven't. Um, the test of that could be soon. We'll see what happens. Yeah. We want to we do solidarity protests, especially to support the shutdown of uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, which the Army Corps of Engineers rightfully should do right. uh, because it doesn't have a permit to go under the Mississippi River as the folks of Standing Rock and the Cheyenne River Sioux have said all along. Uh, and of course, line three is probably working triple time to get that pipe in the ground ahead of lawsuits yeah. brought by indigenous folks and local folks. Yeah, it's, it's I the was, same game. I was excited to see a, an action in Boise of kids, maybe high school students, actually out protesting a J.P. Morgan chase in Boise around Line 3. Yeah, there's been a lot of actions uh, also, I think it's mostly been 350 groups in Spokane. They have uh, showed up at banks as well, uh, protesting both those pipelines. So there's a lot of good action against the financial sponsors of these pipelines. But there should also be pushback, we think, against you know, the, the government agencies that now that we have a new Biden administration that says it stands against climate change, uh, some of these federal agencies should be... Uh, should be revoking some of these permits for pipelines until there's better study, or at least until court cases are settled. Yep. Um, we're probably moving towards the end of our time. And I'm wondering if there's, I mean, you've kind of, you've outlined a lot of this, but I'm going to just kind of put this into a question. Are there, could you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you have found in organizing in red states? Is there anything, you know, that maybe you haven't already said that you would like to, to say? Well, you know, ironically, um, it presents larger obstacles, but also larger freedoms. Because, for instance, we don't engage that much in electoral politics, although a lot of our allied groups do. And uh, it's, it's, we're so grossly uh, underrepresented throughout all the political systems, all the way from the city and county on up to state levels, except in about, maybe there's about seven cool towns in Idaho that are somewhat progressive, um, where the local politics are good, where a lot of uh, the radicals and progressives hang out. Um, you know, in a state like that, where you know that most of the politics is against you, it's sort of like, whoopee, we can do whatever we want, because, you know, I mean, we're sort of doomed to fail, and so we can be as expressive and vocal as we like. And more so because we probably won't be heard because we're in such a rural remote area anyway. Um, but our main obstacle seems to be 
that people are reticent to show up for protests that they feel aren't really going to have an impact. Uh, you know, even the liberals tend to be a little more conservative. And so they want to work through the system. Um, you know, they want to get all the right people elected. Um, you know, they want, they expect the big greens to bring court cases for them. Uh, but it, it's a slow learning process in this place. They learn that, you know, oh, there's a smelter coming or, oh, there's an asphalt plant that you got to take this stuff to court by yourself if that's the way you want to play the game, because right. nobody's going to help you. You're on your own. And that seems to be more the case in rural areas and in red states that citizens really don't have that much support. And so we are actually super grateful for all the networks that we're involved with. Um, we recently got a grant from one of those networks. There's various ones opposing separately, both oil and coal and, and also uh, fracked gas. Um, we're super grateful mostly to the Northwest Network, but also to the whole Rising Tide and international network of folks right. that are fighting all these fossil fuel projects because because otherwise we're out here on our own, you know, as are all the citizens and residents of Idaho. Um, and so that's part of the reason actually why we have the weekly Climate Justice Forum radio program aired in the college town of Moscow, Idaho, right across the state line from another college town of, uh, where there's the uh, Western or Washington State University in, Pol in Pullman, Washington. We air to those mostly, mostly youthful audiences to, to keep them knowing what's going on with fossil fuels resistance all throughout Turtle Island or North America because you know it, it doesn't always look like there's a lot going on in Idaho in terms of resistance. Right. It's always this slow simmer and we have to be super careful because we're outnumbered obviously by the conservatives and the reactionaries with guns and the government and industry but it's just to keep people encouraged that this, this climate movement has been happening for a decade, a decade and a half, right. and happening all around. And it's happening by all the small people of the world, even in Idaho, uh, just standing up to the big oil industry. When we first stood up against ExxonMobil, we were like, wow, this is like the, one of the biggest corporations on the face of the earth that has caused most of the climate change. And it was sort of David versus Goliath. And people are like, how are you going to do that? But, you know, coalitions out of necessity uh, bond and come together rather quickly when you're so outnumbered. Um, and we are really proud of the fact that, you know, there wasn't really much on the ground resistance happening against big oil when we started our megalo campaign, even before we were a rising tide group back in 2010. I mean, there in the summer of 2011, when we were fighting megaloads on the ground, there was the whole sort of stage 350 sit-ins outside the White House. Um, and of course, the Keystone XL fight had been going on for several years, but we were one of the early on the ground folks, I remember we were tallying numbers in about 2012, and we realized there had been more people arrested in Montana and Idaho uh, against fossil fuels, both megaloads and coal and oil trains, than even in way more progressive Oregon and Washington. But then, of course, those states started catching up, and there's been resistance all across the Northwest ever since. So we're, we're sort of glad that, you know, we, we started this ball rolling, showing that even people, little citizens in a very red state can stand up to big industries and actually put a dent 
in this whole juggernaut of energy production, which, of course, uh, the recent bill brought by Bernie Sanders et al. to remo remove fossil fuel subsidies, uh, that media release said that over the next 10 years, 60% of fossil fuels production could happen in the U.S., 60% of all global production. And that's we can't let that happen. That's going to further poison our aquifers with fracking, you know, endanger waterways with not only pipeline spills, but we've seen numerous derailments of coal and oil trains. You know, there was the, the coal train spill I mentioned upriver of Sandpoint. There was a, a diesel locomotive that went into a river north of here in the Kootenai River and spilled 2,000 gallons, so they say, of diesel fuel. Come to find out the cutoff for a major spill that has to be inve investigated is 2,100 gallons. Funny thing that. And then, of course, you know, the other oil train derailments I mentioned earlier in Mosier and Custer. Um, yeah, we're just really risking air and water quality, the essential elements of life. Right. If we allow fossil fuel production and transportation to continue, we, we have to make the change to green, clean energy, you know, that doesn't involve digging up huge lithium mines like what's being fought in Nevada right now but uh, actually sustainable energy that isn't, that's decentralized, that's that's loan, owned by little electric cooperatives, which tends to be the case a lot in rural areas, um, so that we also don't have big um, utilities, for instance, uh, Puget Sound Energy, that's building the huge liquefied natural gas tank uh, on Puyallup traditional lands, uh, at Tacoma. Uh, so it's not just the fossil fuels industry, of course, but also uh, the utilities that we got to be fighting against in this transition towards clean energy. Totally. Um, well, I feel like the work that Wild Idaho Rising Tide and all the folks in Idaho have been doing has been heroic and inspiring to, to be doing it where you've been doing it with the, some of the adversaries that you have. Um, and just real quick, Climate Justice Forum is on... KRFP Radio Free Moscow every Wednesday Pacific time from 1.30 to 3 p.m. Uh, we don't have posted podcasts of that. We might in the future, uh, but we've been airing that show for about nine years and you can find links so you can listen online on the website of Wild Idaho Rising Tide, which is just our name.org. Yep. And we also uh, post all kinds of up, uh, breaking news up on our Facebook page as well. And uh, we'll we'll be posting the links to the to KRFP and Wild mm -hmm. Idaho Rising Tide in our show notes with also a couple of the articles that we've talked about today. Folks, you've been listening to Helen Yost, co-founder and organizer with Idaho Wild Idaho Rising Tide, and uh, citizen journalist, producer, and host of the Climate Justice Forum. Helen, it's been great talking to you. And thank you for all your work and, you know, really hold it down and inviting the fossil fuel sector up there clearly because, you know, you, when you have the FBI show up at your door, it's, it means that someone's paying attention and they're very worried. That's <laughs> how I like to look at it. Yeah. Uh, and folks, you've been listening to the Green and Red podcast. This is Scott Parkin. Uh, if you want to follow us on our social media, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're also are on YouTube. Uh, and then you, if you want to make a donation, check us out on patreon.com backslash green and red podcast to be a regular patron, or you can go make a one-time donation at our website, greenandredpodcast.org. 
And we'll be talking to all of you soon. Stay safe out there.